Amen. Well, it's great to see everybody here this morning, and uh, it was great to have the, the, the young people up here, the kids up here. We're going to have a, a program back here tonight in this room at 6 o'clock, so uh, come back and join us for that. That'll be an exciting time to, to be ministered to, but also it's a great encouragement uh, to these young people as well. So uh, let's come back tonight and support them. Uh, this is the uh, final Sunday in this room until October when it'll be uh, completely renovated. It'll be like the, the new heavens and the new earth when we come in. It'll be all new. Uh, but we've reached a major milestone here in, in this building project. And uh, sometime back, uh, I read about the six phases of a project. Uh, the first is enthusiasm. Number two, disillusionment. Number three, panic. Number four, search for the guilty. Number five, punishment of the innocent. And number six, praise and honors for the non-participants. Well, I'm not sure where we are in that. Hopefully it's excitement all the way for us in our uh, project. But God's blessed our efforts thus far, and we pray that he will continue to uh, bless us as we move forward. And we thank you all so much for your prayer, uh, for your support, and just uh, for the sense of unity and excitement we have together as a church. Well, speaking of excitement, we have the opportunity now to open God's Word together. So if you'll open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, um, we're making our way through this book together in a, a series we've titled Still Standing. And our text this morning is verses 17 through 21 of, of 1 Peter. Let me read these verses for us. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Well, so reads God's inspired word. Some of you probably know the name William Gladstone, W.E. Gladstone. He was an esteemed British statesman. He served multiple terms of, as uh, prime minister of England from 1868 to 1894. And uh, once when he was visiting uh, Christ Church College in England, um, a student asked him about all the changes he'd witnessed during his lifetime. And his answer kind of reflected the optimism of that day, that the British Empire at that time was at its zenith, uh, confidence reigned. And uh, one of the students, though, challenged his optimistic outlook and said, Sir, are we to understand you have no fears for the future? Are there no adverse signs? And the grand old statesman of England, he paused for a moment, and he said slowly, Yes, there is one thing that frightens me. The fear of God seems to be dying out in the minds of men. Gladstone's one fear was that the fear of God seemed to be dying out in the minds of men. And that's a healthy fear, I think, that we should always have, that the fear of God is dying out in the minds of men and the hearts of men. And we see that happening in our culture today. But I think the greatest fear that each of us should have is that the fear of God might die out in our own hearts and in our own minds. We don't want the fear of God to die out in our lives because you and I were created to fear God. That's our purpose for being. Without the fear of God, we're nothing. That, that's the purpose for our existence. We were made by God and for God to fear God. 
You could really say that the fear of God in many ways is the master key to all of life. There's nothing more important in all of life than for you and for me to live our lives each day in the fear of God. This idea of fearing God or the fear of the Lord is found 150 times, over 150 times in the Bible. A lot of these are familiar to you, but let me just read a few. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. People can know a lot of things, but really until our mind is submitted to God, really we don't really know or understand anything. Everything has to be seen through the, the grid of the fear of God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14.26, this is a great verse for all parents and grandparents here today. He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. If you want to give your children a fortress and a refuge in life, fear God. It's the greatest thing my parents ever did for me in all of my life is my parents gave me a legacy of fearing God. And because of that, they created a, a fortress and a refuge for me in my life and for, for my brother and my sister. And if you have grandchildren, that's what you and I need to be doing in this day in which we live, creating a, a, a secure fortress and a refuge for our children and grandchildren. We do that by fearing God. That passage goes on and says, the, the fear of the Lord's a fountain of life. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it rests satisfied. Proverbs 22.4, humility and fear of the Lord will bring wealth and honor and life. And finally, Psalm 31.19, I love this, how abundant are the good things that you've stored up for those who fear you. Someone has said this is like God has a trust fund for all of his children who fear him. And out of that trust fund, God dishes out, if you will, and stores up his goodness for us that he pours out in our lives. Look, the, the fear of God, there's nothing more important than the fear of God in your life and in my life. And that's the focus of our passage here this morning. Now, you all remember the context if you've been with us. The first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 are all about our salvation. Peter lays the foundation of the bedrock of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 13, he comes to the word, therefore. And he's going to give now the practical implications or practical outworking of that salvation in our lives. And we saw two main things last week. We're to hope in the Lord and the grace that's going to be brought to us when Christ comes. And also we're to be holy. Those are the first two commands that are there. But in verse 17 through 21, that passage I read a few moments ago is one long sentence and it has one main verb. And that main verb is to live or conduct yourself in fear. That's the main imperative or command. Conduct yourself, live your life in the fear of God. The, all the things around that imperative are telling us how we do that, or I guess more importantly, why you and I are to fear God. So the one command is to fear God. The rest of this passage is going to tell us why we should do that. So I've got two simple points this morning, the requirement to fear God, and then the reasons that Peter gives us why we should live our life in the fear of God. The requirement here is very simple, and that is it's a command, live your life in the fear of God. Now the word fear here is the Greek word phobos, we get our word phobia from that, and uh, we, we hear about a lot of phobias nowadays. I got online, and uh, the top phobias are fear of heights, 
uh, fear of reptiles. That's kind of interesting. Another one is fear of public speaking. That's called glossophobia. A fear of deep lakes and oceans, a fear of tight places. And 7% of the people in America are afraid of clowns. They have a phobia about clowns. I, I don't get that. But anyway, a lot of people don't like clowns. Now, this time of year, I will confess, I am a germaphobe this time of year. I don't want to get sick, so I'm washing my hands all the time. But the, the Bible tells us, though, we're to have theophobia. That is, we're to have a fear of God. And it's a command here. You and I are commanded to fear God. Now, the fear of God is not a, a cringing, cowering fear because God is our Father. The, the fear of God is an awesome, astonished devotion of God. It's an awesome, awestruck, astonished devotion to God. Uh, to fear God is to be conscious of God's all-pervasive presence in our lives and our moment-by-moment dependence on Him for light and for life. It's being conscious of the all-pervasive presence of God in my life, moment-by-moment. Fearing God is an attitude of worshipful submission to God. It's a reverential awe for Him. It's to be struck by the sheer glory of His being. In other words, to, be, to fear God means to have a God-centered life, to take God seriously, not superficially or shallowly, because we believe that God stands alone. In fact, what is the verse right before verse 17? In verse 16, what does it say? You shall be holy, for I am holy. And we saw last time that God's holiness first and foremost means God is transcendently holy. God is other. God is separate. He's he's distinct. He's in a class by Himself. He dwells in unapproachable light. And because of that, we're to fear Him. In fact, it's interesting. Back in Genesis 31, twice, God is called the fear. That's simply the name for God. He's simply called the fear. Now think about this for a moment. God is free to do with you and with me as He pleases. All our successes, all of our sufferings are under His control. You and I live and we move in the fear of God. I like what Robbie Zacharias says. I can relate to this because I'm getting older. He says, the older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder. And only God is big enough to do that. That's why so many older people are disillusioned with life and, and angry because they've never found the only thing that's big enough to fill their life. And the only thing that's big enough to fill our lives is our great God and bowing in fear to Him. So Peter's commandment here is very simple. The requirement that he's calling upon us to fulfill is to fear God, to live our lives in awesome, awestruck devotion to God, to live our lives conscious of His all-pervasive presence in our lives and live in a moment-moment dependence upon Him. Now, The rest of these verses, everything else in verses 17 to 21, we move from the imperative to what I call the incentives. Why should you and I fear God? Now, there's a lot of reasons, but he gives two main reasons or motivations for you and for me to fear God. The first one is the prospect of our judgment. This one looks to the future. Notice he begins, he says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges. Now, the word if there could be translated since, since you address God as Father, because we do. If we know Him and have believed in Him, He is our Father. And since we call Him Father and address Him as Father, 
then we should conduct ourselves in a way that reflects our reverence for God as our Father. We're to display the same respect for God that a child shows toward a beloved and esteemed father, not wanting to to, to grieve him or do anything that will offend him. In other words, part of fearing God is a fear of offending and grieving and displeasing God who is my father. It's like a story I read about a young man. He was out with some of his friends messing around, and they wanted to do something that if they got caught doing it was going to get them in a lot of trouble. And one of the boys objected. He says, I'm not going to do it. And the other boys began to taunt him. And one boy said, you're afraid that if you do this and your father finds out about it, he'll hurt you. And the boy says, no, I'm afraid if I do this and he finds out about it, it'll hurt him. And that's the way you and I should feel about God as our father. We don't want to grieve him and hurt him. We have a, a fear of disappointing or offending him. Now, the focus, though, here in verse 17 is on the fact that God is our judge. And what this does, this looks ahead to a future event the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. It's called the Bema seat of Christ. A Bema in that day was a raised platform like I'm standing on now, where judges were. Whenever they gave out the rewards at the Olympic Games, the the, uh, judges would be on a a Bema or a platform. When uh, rewards were handed out in a military camp, there was a Bema or a judgment seat. And so this looks ahead to that event when you and I will stand before the Lord. He said, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ will someday stand individually before the Lord Jesus, to have our life as a believer evaluated and reviewed. Like someone said years ago, every one of us is going to have to sing solo before God. We had the choir up here earlier, these young people. You you get in the choir, you can sound okay if you blend in with everybody, right? We have to sing solo before God. Romans 14, 12 says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And you'll notice in our verse here, God impartially judges according to each one's work. You and I will stand before the judgment seat. Now, we won't stand there to to determine whether we get into heaven or not. We'll already be in heaven. So the judgment seat, the judgment there is not to determine if you get into heaven. That was already determined here on earth when you trusted in Jesus Christ. So at the judgment seat of Christ, when we stand before the Lord, it's not our beliefs that will be tested, but it's our behavior. The destination for eternity won't be tested. It's our works as a believer. So it's our belief that determines where we will spend eternity, but it's our behavior that's going to determine how we will spend eternity, what rewards we will have and and honors and privileges. So at the judgment seat, it's not going to be our sins that are under review, but our service for the Lord. I always want to make this clear between our salvation and our rewards. Salvation is based on Christ's work for us. Rewards are based on our works for Him after we become a believer. Salvation comes by belief, rewards by behavior. Um, I went, when I was at Dallas Seminary, I heard that years earlier in the registrar's office, there was a sign that hung there that said, salvation is by grace, graduation is by works. And I like that. That's a good reminder for students, right? Salvation's by grace, but graduation is by works. 
there's a lot of places in the New Testament that talk about this judgment will stand before someday. Several of them, though, are back in uh, Corinthians. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians 3, you remember that Paul compares uh, the church there, and then I think by application, the life of a believer to a building. And he says, the foundation is Jesus Christ. But then each one of us decide how we're going to build upon that foundation. And he said, you can take, you can use uh, gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, and hay, and straw. In other words, you can choose that which will uh, last, or you can choose that which will go up in flames. And he says in 1 Corinthians 3.14, or 3.13, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. In other words, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you'll, you'll be saved yet so as through fire. One man said that some believers there at the judgment seat are going to smell like they were bought at a fire sale. I mean, it's going to, a lot's going to be going up in smoke there at the judgment seat of Christ. Look on down at chapter 4 and verse 5 of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. God is going to bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and He's going to disclose the motives of our hearts. It's not only what we did, but why we did it. You and I are choosing every day whether we want to build our life with gold and silver and precious stones or with uh, wood, hay, and straw. Finally, one other verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 2 Corinthians 5.10, notice how emphatic this is. For we must all, it's not, not optional, you must, and it's every believer, we must all appear. And that word appear doesn't just mean show up, it means to be made manifest. We must all be made manifest before the judgment seat or the Bema seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, the bad here is not our sins because I don't think they'll be brought up at the judgment seat, but it's the, the, the things that we've done for the Lord as a believer, whether they're worth reward or whether they're worthless. Now, notice verse 11. He said, you're going to have to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Saying, look, thinking about standing before the judgment seat someday and giving an account for yourself should produce in your life the fear of God. It's tied together here again in these verses, just as it is uh, over in 1 Peter. Look, God knows what you do, and He knows what I do, and He knows why we do it, and His evaluation will be based on a true estimation of our actions and our attitudes, and we can fool other people, but we cannot fool God. And Peter is saying here, the thought someday of standing before the Lord for my life to be evaluated and reviewed should sober me up to live every day in the fear of God. Erwin Lutzer has a really good book on the judgment seat of Christ, and he says this. This is good. He says, imagine staring into the face of Christ, just the two of you one-on-one. -on -one. 
Your entire life is present before you in a flash. You see what he sees. No hiding, no opportunity to put a better spin on what you did. No attorney to represent you. The look in his eyes says it all. Like it or not, that is precisely where you and I will be someday. And he says here that he's going to judge us impartially. Did you notice that uh, back in our passage in 1 Peter? He's going to judge us impartially. He's going to do it without showing favoritism. God is a fair and impartial judge. The Bible says God is impartial. There's no partiality with him. So at the judgment seat, the rich, the wealthy, the beautiful, um, people who are talented and gifted are not going to get a better deal than those without those things. You can't purchase these rewards. God is fair and God's impartial. By the way, did you know the one group that's going to get judged more severely than everybody else? There's one group that's, that's, sing, that's uh, uh, singled out in Scripture. It's those who teach the Bible. James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. And I can tell you honestly, I'm gripped by that reality every week. To stand up before people and to say, this is what God says. And to ask yourself whether you're living that out in your own life is a sobering responsibility. I heard someone say years ago, if you're at the judgment seat of Christ and you see a line over there with a bunch of preachers in it, go get in the other line. It'll go quicker because it's going to be a stricter judgment. One group of people will be judged more strictly, those who uh, hold forth the word of life. But God's going to review our lives. And knowing that he's watching us and he's going to judge us should motivate us to live in the fear of God. There's a story from years ago about the editor of a, of a newspaper in England. And the, the newspaper was constantly filled with typos and errors and all kinds of mistakes. And he was frustrated and he tried every, everything he could do, but he couldn't get these writers to clean up their writing no matter what he did. Nothing worked. Finally, one day when they were all gathered together, he asked him if they knew that the king read the newspaper every day. And starting the very next day from then on, all the typos and the mistakes disappeared. Knowing that the king read the paper changed everything. They wanted the paper to be excellent for him. And for you and for me, the king is reading our lives every day. He's reading our lives. He's reading the fine print. And he sees all the typos and all the mistakes. And knowing that should motivate us to purify our lives and live in the fear of God and devotion to him. Because one day we're going to be called to account and our life's going to be reviewed. In Ecclesiastes, the very last verses, you know, Ecclesiastes is um, this uh, book written by Solomon, kind of expressing his disillusionment with life. Listen to Ecclesiastes, the very end of the book. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And then what does he say? Because God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. What does Solomon say? Why we should fear God? Because God's going to bring every deed to judgment. He's going to bring it to light. The same thing that Peter's telling us here. The bottom line in life is to fear God. And one of the great motivations to do that is you and I are going to have to give an account to him someday. So the first incentive to fear God looks to the future, our future judgment. But notice the second reason here looks to the past. So God's not just going to be my judge in the future, but he's my redeemer in the past. 
Look at verse 18, knowing. And what he's saying is, look, fear God, but fear God because you know you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life. Now, you and I, the Bible tells us, are enslaved to sin, and we need to be delivered and set free. We need to be redeemed. That's what the word redemption means. It means to, to set free or to ransom by paying a price. It's a ransom price that's paid. Redemption is to be purchased with a price. It's to purchase freedom by paying a ransom. Now, back in that day, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. One out of every five people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And uh, slaves worked, and they actually made money and could buy their own freedom. And the way it worked is you'd take money when you finally had enough as a slave, and you'd take it to the temple, and you'd offer it to a god or a goddess there. And then at the temple, they would take out their commission. There's always a commission involved, right? And then they would pay that money to your owner. And then the slave would be set free from his owner, but he would be considered a slave always then to that god or the goddess. And that's probably the New Testament imagery behind this. But, of course, the Old Testament imagery is all the way back to the time of the Exodus when God delivered and redeemed his people out of Egypt, you remember, by the blood of those Passover lambs that were placed upon uh, the door. So that's the imagery probably that's behind this in the minds of these readers. Uh, the word redeemed here, you were redeemed with, not redeemed with perishable things. It's in the passive. So it means God is the object of this. God is the one who comes and redeems us. We don't redeem ourselves. And we're redeemed because Jesus paid the full price for our freedom from sin. In fact, William Temple says this, he says, the only thing a man can contribute to his own redemption is the sin from which he needs to be redeemed. It's all you and I bring to, the, bring to this. All we bring is the sin from which we need to be redeemed. And only the blood of Jesus Christ can redeem us. Now, people in our world today don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear there's one way to God, and they especially don't like to hear that a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice had to be offered. It, it just cuts against the grain of our culture. But the only satisfaction, the only payment God will accept is the blood of Christ. There's a, a pizza restaurant in Rio Doso, New Mexico, that we go to all the time when we're there. We've been going there ever since we've been, been going out there. It's been probably 30 years. But when we started going there, there was a sign up by the cash register that said, no checks, no credit cards, we accept only cash. Cash was the only form of payment they would accept. Now, since then, they've caved in. I think they take credit cards now and stuff, but I still pay with cash. That's what I like to do. But they own the place, so they determine what method of payment will be accepted. And God created this world, and God owns the world, and the death of Jesus Christ is the only payment that God will accept. And God's method of payment will never, ever change. People bring their good works. They bring church membership. They bring rituals. They bring their baptism. The only form of payment that has currency in heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, we're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, the most valuable things on earth we know of. There's not enough gold in all of Fort Knox to pay the price for one sin, let alone the thousands of sins we commit during a lifetime. Down here on this earth, money talks. 
you want to be accepted, you need money. But if you want to be accepted in heaven, the only currency that is accepted there is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's his blood for our blood. It's his life for our life. Instead of our death, there's his death. Instead of our blood, there is his blood. And it's been well pointed out many, many times. I got this from preachers years ago. I used to hear when I was growing up that the blood of Jesus is like a scarlet thread that runs through the whole Bible and stitches it all together. And you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, Abel brings a blood sacrifice to God uh, to worship him in payment for his sin. You go to Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham is there going to offer Isaac on the altar and God stays his hand and Isaac cries out. He says, Father, he says, "Uh, where is the lamb? In Exodus chapter 12, when God redeemed the Jewish people out of Egypt, they took a lamb for each family and they they slew the lamb and put the, the blood on the lintel and the doorpost. When the angel of death came over that night, he says, whenever I see the blood, I will pass over you. Their sins had been covered by, by an innocent substitute. Leviticus 17.11 says life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And you go all the way to the end of the Bible, and this is a, a scene that I think you and I will participate in, Genesis or Revelation 5, where the, the, the host in heaven is crying out, worthy is the lamb. And why is he worthy? Because he purchased us from every people and tribe and tongue and nation. The scarlet thread that runs through the whole Bible. In fact, uh, someone said you can summarize the whole Bible in these three phrases. Genesis chapter 22, Isaac said, Father, where is the lamb? John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, Behold the lamb of God. And in in Revelation chapter 5, it's worthy is the lamb. It's this scarlet thread that runs all the way through uh, the Bible. And it says here that Christ's blood is precious blood. Now, the word precious here is not used in the sense that we would use it, like you look at a little baby and you say, oh, isn't isn't she so precious? It means costly. It means valuable. And the blood of Christ is precious because the blood of Christ is the gospel. That's the good news. There is no hope in a bloodless gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ is precious because he is precious. His blood is intrinsically precious because of who he is. His blood is precious because of, the, of, of whose life it was sustaining. That blood was sustaining the, the, the life of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says here that he's a lamb unblemished. And again, this looks back to, to Exodus chapter 12 when they were take, a, take a, a, an unblemished lamb or a lamb without blemish to offer. Jesus is a perfect sacrifice. His blood is unrivaled, it's unequaled, it's incomparable. He's the sinless, spotless Son of God. And unlike us, His blood is innocent blood. And His blood was paid uh, for our freedom. Years ago, I think it was back in 2005 in USA Today, there was kind of a funny story in there about the Republican Party mistakenly invited an Ohio prisoner to a $2,500 a plate fundraising dinner in Washington with President George Bush. It was sent out by Dick Cheney's office to the Belmont Correctional Institution in Ohio. And the guy that received it uh, was a man named, his last name was Kirkpatrick, and uh, he was sentenced to over th- about three years in prison. Uh, for drug possession and escape. 
And he's a 35-year-old guy at the time. And he responded by saying, I'm going to tell him that I'd be happy to attend, but he's going to have to pull some strings for me to get there. And I like that story because here's a man who's captive, and he knows the only way that he's going to get out is somebody's going to have to pull some strings for him. And that's what God came and did for us in the person of Jesus Christ. He came and made a sacrifice so we could be set free. And Peter is saying here that you and I must fear God because we've been ransomed at an infinite cost. We must fear living as if that ransom was not precious. He says you've been redeemed from your futile way of life. It means empty and worthless and meaningless. That The blood of Christ ransoms us from a meaningless life. So we don't want to live our new life as if that ransom was anything less than glorious and and precious and priceless. Because of sin and God's judgment of sin, this world we live in has been subjected to futility. And so this world will never, ever be what you want it to be. It'll never be what I want it to be. And it'll never give you what you long for most. Only Christ and his redemption can deliver to you and deliver to me what we most long for. And that is a relationship with God who we can reverence and stand in awe of. And again, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Life down under this sun without fearing God is meaningless. Something is missing. And we find out what life is all about. Life suddenly takes on a spark and a, a, a purpose that's beyond our ability to grasp before. Look, if you're a young person here today, the most important thing for you to get cemented in your mind at this point in life is to fear God. Live your life uh, conscious of his all-pervasive influence in your life with a moment-by-moment dependence upon him for life. That's what life's all about. It's about fearing God. Billy Graham said, man was not made for emptiness. We have a hole inside of us only God can fill. We were made by God for God. And God wants to redeem us from an empty life. The rest of these verses, verses 20 and 21, basically give us more reasons why the death of Christ and his blood is so precious. One of the reasons is that Christ was eternally foreknown. Notice he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The word foreknown literally means to be foreloved. Christ was foreloved by God the Father before the foundation of the world, which, by the way, implies his preexistence. And it tells us that our salvation, our redemption was not an accident or an afterthought with God. God already had the remedy planned out before Adam and Eve ever sinned in the garden. It was formed in the eternal counsels of God. So he was eternally foreknown. He was manifested in human form. He became a man. He he appeared in these last times. He became a man. He was incarnate. He shed his blood. Verse 21 tells us he was raised from the dead and that God gave him glory. His sacrifice is precious. Jesus was eternally foreknown, manifested in human flesh, shed his blood, was resurrected from the dead. He's ascended to glory. And our response, you'll notice in these verses, is to trust and to hope in him. Notice verse 21 says, who through him are believers in God. It's through Jesus Christ. He's the door to God. My favorite words, though, in all this passage are at the end of verse 20. And it says this, but he has appeared in these last times for you. 
He appeared. Jesus came and he died and he was raised again. And it says he did all of this for you and he did it for me. When you and I look back at the awesome price that he paid for us, we should fear God. Psalm 130 verse 4 says this, Because you have forgiven me, therefore I fear you. We fear God. We're, we're in devotion and, and, and awestruck uh, wonder of who God is because he's forgiven us. But here's the, the most important thing here this morning. You have to accept it to be forgiven and redeemed. It won't do you any good unless you take it. There's an old story. It's been around for a long time. It comes from the, the time of Andrew Jackson. In 1829, a man named George Wilson in Pennsylvania was sentenced to be hanged by a U.S. court for robbing a U.S. male, and he threatened several people when he was doing it. So he was sentenced to death. But Andrew Jackson, President Jackson, pardoned him, but George Wilson refused the pardon. And he said that it wasn't any good unless he accepted it. And so that was a point of law that had never been raised before. I mean, nobody had ever refused a pardon. So it was sent to the Supreme Court, and Chief Justice John Marshall rendered this decision in 1833, United States versus Wilson. He said this, A pardon is a paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that one under sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon, but, but if it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. Now, what I would say to you this morning is, don't be like George Wilson. The Bible tells us Jesus has purchased a full pardon for you to set you free. And this is the beauty of the gospel. All you have to do is just take it. You just take the pardon that he purchased for you when he died and he rose again. You have to receive it. And if you've never done that, why not take that pardon right now and receive what Jesus Christ did for you when he paid the ransom uh, for you there on the cross? The Bible says that Christ has redeemed us from the law, having been made a curse for us. He's redeemed us by his blood. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for the many. The price um, has been paid. And really, that's the beginning of the fear of God in the life of a person when you realize that you're a sinner and you can do nothing for yourself and you accept that free pardon uh, that God offers to you. The most important fear in life, the most important thing in life is the fear of God. You and I are to fear God. That's why we were made. That's our purpose for being and we fear God because of something that happened in the past and something that's going to happen in the future. Think about this. God is telling you and me today to fear God, to conduct our lives in the fear of God. And he's given us two anchor points to help us with that, our past redemption and our prospective judgment. We look back to the infinite cost and price that God paid to redeem us. And we look ahead to the prospect of judgment, of standing before the Lord someday and giving an account of ourselves. And he's saying as we look to these two anchor points, one in the past and one in the future, you and I in between that time, we live our lives daily in the fear of God with this, this conscious uh, sense of God's all-pervasive presence in our lives, a moment-by-moment -moment dependence upon Him, an awestruck, astonished devotion to God every moment of our lives. May God help us to do that. Let's go out of here and, and be God-fearing people and live that way until Christ comes. Let's pray together.
Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never received that pardon that was purchased for them, I pray that right where they sit right now in the quiet of their heart and mind, that they'll receive that pardon that Jesus purchased through his death and through his resurrection. Father, that's the gospel. Christ died for us. He ransomed us from our sin. All we have to do is take it. Father, for those who know you, those of us who know you, help us to live our lives in the fear of God. Oh, Father, to look back at that price that was paid for us, that infinite price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You've delivered us. You've rescued us from a life of futility and meaninglessness. We look ahead to that day when we're going to stand before you someday, every one of us by ourselves, singing solo, giving account of ourselves to you, Father. Help us to live in the fear of God, to die in your favor, to rest in your peace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.